Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I am your host as always, Steve Hall, and I'm joined today by Jackson Pios. So many of you may be aware of, Jack- aware of Jackson. He's recently been on some very popular podcasts similar to our own, and hopefully you have heard some of his work already. But if you haven't, to introduce Jackson, he is a competitive physique athlete and coach, uh, currently studying at the University of Western Australia, uh, where he's investigating the effects of diet breaks versus continuous dieting in athletic populations. Uh, And I didn't want to kind of labor the fact that you'd have been on other podcasts, you've spoken about that a lot. And I wanted to kind of dig into more of your other knowledge and things you've been talking about over in your Instagram, which is super interesting. Uh, But before we get into that, is there anything else you kind of want to let the listeners know about Jackson? Um, That's pretty good summary, but just a quick spiel. Um, So in terms of my credentials, I've got a um, double major Bachelor of Science specializing um, in sports science and exercise and health. Um, Did quite well with those studies and then transitioned to an honours degree. I'm not sure if the university, if you have honours over in the UK or whatnot, but that would be similar to like a master's program. Um, Did really well in that. That was um, focusing on exercise physiology. graduated with first class honours in that um, and then the university approached me um, based on my, my results there and they offered me a scholarship um, to complete my PhD there and that's where I am now um, and as you said my, my area of research which I'm, which I'm really digging into at the moment is what we call this intermittent calorie restriction um, which contrasts sort of the traditional dieting approach which would be continuous caloric restriction where the person is just in a caloric deficit every day for the duration of the weight loss phase um, whereas the dieting methods that I'm looking at now it's sort of the cyclical nature of calories up and down um, where you will alternate between a period of, of an energy deficit or, or a period of dieting with a higher feeding period. And that, that higher feeding period usually refer to that um, as, as a refeed or a diet break depending on the duration um, of them. Um, I've, got a, I've got another new study that we're working on at the moment. We can probably talk about that. Yeah, I actually yeah. haven't talked, spoke, spoken about that with anyone. Let's do that. Um, <laughs> Eric, Eric Helms and Krieger and they're going to be involved with that as well. Um, so it's going to be a really, really tight study. Um, also got my hands um, in a few little supplement studies at the moment. Um, you mentioned spot reducing before. I'm potentially going to be looking at um, a spot reducing cream um, that uh, sort of this transdermal fat loss agent that apply on the skin to, in theory, um, sort of reduce the subcutaneous fat layer. Um, but yeah, that's where I'm at at the moment. Cool. Yeah, really exciting stuff. I think a lot of um, well, our audience is all kind of a lot of physique competitors or people very interested in kind of maximal fat loss, muscle gains, so all of those things kind of pricking many exciting ears. In terms of the, the study you said you haven't spoken about before on a podcast, can you dig deeper into that? Can you reveal more what that yeah. might show and what your kind of hypothesis is? Yeah, so I won't, I won't give everything away. Um, so if anyone scoops me, I'll know there was a fucking revive stronger <laughs> listener. <laughs> um, but so... Um, it sort of originated with um, a conversation I was having with with Jacob Shepherds from JPS, um, and we were talking about sort of there's this a theory, there's a theory that a person might be able to gain more benefits um, from a refeed or diet break the leaner they are or or sort of the longer they've been dieting, um, and that that's based on some evidence. Um, for example, we know that sort of when you look at overweight dieters. Um, Typically, they will have no reductions in lean mass. Um, typically, we actually see improvement in their anabolic hormone profiles. Um, whereas when you contrast that to a really lean athlete, um, 
the leaner they are, um, typically they become a lot more susceptible to sort of muscle losses. Um, the adapt, other adaptive responses to energy restriction become a lot more severe and a lot more persistent. Um, and typically we see negative alterations in the anabolic hormone profiles. Um, so with that being said, we thought, well, um, it's, it's definitely possible that sort of, um, uh, that what these lean athletes might sort of might require these more often, more frequently, the leaner they are and, and sort of the later they are into a, a weight loss phase or a contest prep versus maybe someone who's at a higher body fat, only just started dieting their phase, but potentially um, they might not merit these refeeds and diet breaks purely from the fact that they might not um, get as much benefits from them. So how are we going to test it? Well, we're going to take a, big, a, a large group of natural bodybuilders um, from different stages of their contest prep. Um, so some are going to be lean, some are going to be not so lean, um, some are going to be dieting for a while, some maybe just just started their diet. Um, and we're going to give them we're going to give them a diet break protocol. Um, and we're going to take a number of measurements at different increments. Um, so obviously we're going to have them at baseline. So that's after a period of dieting, then they start their diet break and different intervals across their diet break. We're going to take measures of some resting energy expenditure, um, some mood state, psychological stuff. Um, we're going also going to look at sort of recovery and performance and things like that. And what it's going to tell us is going to say, well, do we see more improvements in these markers in the leaner people versus the not so leaner people? Do we see greater improvements in the people that have been slogging it out for 12 weeks versus maybe the people who have only been dieting a couple of weeks or, or a month maybe maybe they don't get any benefits maybe there's no um maybe there's no improvements from the diet break and if that was the case um that would have practical application because then coaches would be able to say okay um maybe we don't need to start diet breaks from week one about week two of our diet maybe we only need them in the latter ages of, of a contest prep or a weight loss phase cool yeah i think that would be really interesting i think I I think a lot of the listeners will be along the lines of thinking, oh yeah, the leaner you are, the more beneficial it's going to be become. Do you mm -hmm. have Do you have that kind of? Do you think that's going to be what it will reveal? Or it's 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 a tough one. Like I, I heard Mike um, speak on one of your podcasts a little. Um, it would have been only a few weeks ago, and he was he was sort of saying how it, it was like I love Mike and he's very funny, and he was sort of saying like. <laughs> Motherfucker, you've had a cheat life. Yeah. You don't need a diet break, <laughs> sort, of, sort of thing, and like. On face value, like that sounds that sounds very logical, um, but we also need to remember that in terms of the the intermittent dieting studies and the studies that have um, used refeeds and diet breaks, they're not on athletes; they're actually right. on overweight people. Um, and and when we've seen benefits of refeeds and diet breaks, they've been in overweight people. So I'm not sure I completely agree with Mike in saying that maybe an overweight pe person doesn't merit any sort of cyclical nature of their calories during a diet phase because we've seen benefits in the, in those sort of people who aren't training who are pretty fat. Um, but I also would not be surprised at all um, if we saw that sort of these really lean dudes who have, who have been putting the pedal down for 12 weeks, um, they might see a really sort of remarkable change in some of these, some of these outcome variables um, when, when we increase their calories. Cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I can't wait for that research. Do you know when it might come out? Have you got any kind of... Um, so like it, this is we've only been working on it sort of for the last couple of months right. um, and man research takes a long time <laughs> um, <laughs> so I'm where what I'm doing at the moment we, we're, we're pretty tight on the procedure and the methods um, I'm just running through the, the ethics on my end to make sure it's approved um, from the university. Once the university says you guys are good to go, um, then we'll start recruiting straight away. Um, but but our plan is to sort of target um, the natural bodybuilders who sort of 
are competing in season B in Australia. Um, so, so we'll be planning to do the majority of our data collection in the second half of the year. Cool. Yeah, hopefully that won't be too hard to pull people in because it's kind of a protocol a lot of people end up using anyway. Yeah. Yeah, you yeah, that's that anyway. what we're hoping for. <laughs> cool. So you kind of touched on this spot reducing uh, cream and I've actually seen, I think it might even be someone like Ronnie Coleman has popularized this kind of cream. He rubs on himself. And it's like, I think he says he used it in all of his shows or whatever. And it's like an amazing thing. And the skeptical in me is thinking this guy's just being a bit of a sellout. He's trying to kind of just make some money, but I'd be really interested here kind of, it doesn't necessarily have to be the cream he's using, but what's that research you're looking into and kind of how legitimate is the claims that some of these kind of products are making? Um, in terms of, th there's a couple of issues with um, these transdermal creams and, and these fat loss agents. Number one concern is, is the ingredients in the product actually penetrating the sort of the dermis layer and actually getting into the subcutaneous layer where it, where it can actually sort of have an effect. Um, the second issue is, are these ingredients in the product blends, do they actually really do anything? Um, and the product that I'm looking at, um, that I'm planning to do a study on at the moment, um, the, the number one study, um, sorry, the number one ingredient that's sort of supposed to be the number one um, fat loss agent um, is this thing called coleus forscoli. Um, it's a herb. Um, and there's the, the research, honestly, is very sketchy on it. Um, we've seen some studies that have shown a positive benefit um, to, to taking these products. Um, sometimes they're confounded by um, sort of the people funding these studies or the, the same people make, making the product. Um, so now, like, that's that's not a... We shouldn't straight away say, "Oh, if they're funding it, then we then we can't take these um, these researches. This research is valid because if studies don't get funded, they don't happen." So, um, but I will still say that the 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 research on these ingredients is um, I'm far from confident um, that that it's going to have at least a, a significant effect. It might be minor. Um, um, but I'm not sure how significant it, it will be. And the International Olympic Committee, who sort of they every few years they they get sort of the best supplement and nutritional researchers together, and they do a review on all the supplements they they put out a position stand. I'm, I'm sure you've seen these before. Um, and their current stance on, on coleus forscoli is um, or, or forscolin, as it's also called, is that um, there's just not enough research for us to to be able to sort of make a really solid stance. Um, on this ingredient. Uh, but with that being said, um, the company that sort of their product that I am investigating is hugely popular in Australia. Like it is, it is flying off the shelves and like there's, there's, there's a whole lot of good anecdote and a lot of case studies, but it's, it's always an issue because like people might say, Oh, like my, my glutes really tightened up and I was rubbing this cream. It's like, well, were you also in a caloric deficit? And they're like, well, yeah, it's like, well, how do you fucking know, like, it's the cream or the deficit doing that? Um, so I'm skeptical. Um, and, like, I'm, I'm not sure. Like, if, if I had to put my money somewhere, I'd say it's probably going to be a marginal um, effect, if anything. Um, but research is sometimes surprising. Mm -hmm. Really interesting. I think it's always appealing to have something that's going to aid a process that mm. we don't want to really have to work for. So any pill, mm. any supplement that's going to help with fat loss, then, and I, I guess it's inherent that the placebo effect could be relatively strong with that as well, where people mm. kind of, yeah, it's, you don't know what's working towards that fat loss probably. Well, the calorie deficit we know is, <laughs> is this helping at all? That's what you're trying mm. to reveal. So that's really interesting.
Yeah, and and the way that we're going to set up this study, so like the, the placebo thing is massive. Um, so the study design that, that we're planning to do is um, we, we want each participant to act as their own control. Um, so because if like obviously everyone has individual responses and whatnot, but let's just say, for example, we had on their left quad, they were applying the, the, um, the active ingredient cream sort of twice a day for eight weeks um, versus on their right leg, um, just, just a sham cream. Lovely. Um, and we've got an ultrasound at the university which can directly measure subcutaneous fat thickness. Um, so I'm thinking we give everyone like a 10% caloric deficit just to standardize the diet. And then the only difference is, is going to be whether you're getting the actual product on your left leg versus a sham product on your right leg. And then we'll, pretty, we'll be able to see pretty clearly if we're actually seeing any differences in what this cream is doing. Yeah, that'll be really interesting. I don't know why in my head this the skeptic in me is like hoping that it comes out as if it's doing nothing but really I should hope that it is doing something because <laughs> that would just help everyone lose fat <laughs> in a better way yeah yeah that's the problem man like with, with these supplements that sort of offer these sort of these cure or miracle cure like crazy claims and things like that it's often people get get duped into it just because like they become frustrated with with their dieting efforts and things like that, and then they they just become so frustrated and exhausted that they're willing to try anything, which is why I think so so many of these products become really popular. And actually, to talk about the spot reducing a bit further, uh, I think there was a review that you well, there was a study you looked over on your Instagram that I picked up, and it was about kind of doing ab exercise to reduce um, ab fat and. Do you want to talk to that and what the kind of the, the thoughts are in terms of kind of like increasing blood flow in certain areas to kind of spot reduce and things like this and whether or not that pans out? Yeah, so so essentially um, there's sort of this law that um, to sort of to get a six pack you need to do crunches, right? Um, and the, the theory behind that is that um, – when you're activating the musculature in the, in the abs, it draws blood flow to that area and it can potentially facilitate fat loss um, locally, spot reduce. Um, but with that study um, that, that you talked about, um, they actually saw that um, doing crunches really had no significant impact um, on abdominal fat or abdominal subcutaneous fat loss. Um, so what that tells us is unfortunately sort of like everyone says, the abs are sort of made in the kitchen. Um, and everyone's going to have sort of the, these stubborn body fat areas. Um, now, there's nothing there's nothing inherently stubborn about them. It just – we just – everyone has places where, where the body's going to take the fat off last. Um, so it doesn't mean the fat can't go from there. It just means um, you're going to have to diet long enough to actually where the body gets in a position where they say, okay, well, we don't have enough fat on your arms or your chest or your legs – um, we have to take it to abs. We we don't have a choice. Um, so that that that's that's sort sort of the the large finding about that is is just um, unfortunately um, doing specific exercises on on certain areas is going to have very minimal impact um, on actually targeting that area for adipose and fat. Yeah, really interesting. I think a, a quote I like from, I think it was Nick Tuminello, is kind of like, you can't spot reduce, but you can spot enhance. Uh, at least, mm -hmm. hopefully, you can build thicker abs. But again, that's a bit in under yeah, some contention. Yeah, like, that's a difficult absolutely. thing. Absolutely. Like, if you, you hypertrophy the, the rectus abdominis, it's, become, it's going to be more pronounced and that the abs are going to pop through, um, potentially giving you a better look. Mm -hmm. Sort of, it could potentially even give you a leaner look because the abs are popping through the fat. But um, in terms of the actual subcutaneous fat thickness itself, it's, it's really not going to do much. Awesome. 
And on the same kind of line of thought in terms of fat loss and everything we're talking about, I saw a few studies that you were picking apart in terms of smelling food and uh, the differences between kind of exposure time and the different foods you're smelling and whether or not there's any practical implications for like as a dieter, yeah. whether or not you should smell certain foods, not smell them and how you might kind of be able to derive some benefit or kind of actually make things harder for yourself. Yeah, I, th that, that study was super cool. That's, that's a really new one. Excuse me. Um, so what they... Um, the premise behind that study um, and what the authors were speculating before they completed the study was that um, some of the signals involved with satiety um, might be similar um, through taste and through smell um, and that some of the, the, the mechanisms might be sort of interchangeable. Um, so what they did is um, just make sure I'm remembering it correctly. So they got participants and they um, – they got them to smell sort of a really like high fat, high carb, really. I think it was, might've been cookies and pizza or, right. or, or some, some, something like that. And, and what they showed is, is when, um, when a person smells it for, I think it was less than one minute, um, their drive to eat the food and sort of con consume the, the, the junk foods, um, became much higher. Um, but when they had to smell it for like, I think it was over three minutes or, or something like that, two and a half minutes or something like that. Um, they actually didn't want the, the high fatty foods as much and they ended up like taking an apple. Um, so in terms of practical application, like I think I made some jokes about the post. <laughs> It was a while back, like telling like dieters to go like sit in Pizza Hut for ten minutes and then go home and like eat your chicken salad or something like that. I've had my fix. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but like it, it's super interesting, um, and I hope that there's some some follow up research. Like uh, that's probably the first study of that kind that I've seen. Um, but yeah, interesting, interesting stuff, and I'm I'm keen to see where it goes. Yeah, it is interesting because. I don't know, they always, like it's out of sight, out of mind. I guess I wonder if that mm. applies the same to the nose, but it's like if you mm. see it or you're kind of smelling it, as it were, for so long, you kind of almost desensitize yourself to it. You're just like, oh, yeah. I don't care anymore. It's been there for so long. Yeah, and I think I made the example on, on the post. It was like a story of like where back when I was a kid and you'd come home from school, like you didn't, you're coming home from school, you don't feel like cookies, walk inside mum's got cookies in the oven like well I feel like some cookies but like and that that could be that short-term sort of um um smelling that short-term smell and sensation and things like that but maybe if you sort of sat there for a, a little bit longer maybe the sort of the the drive to eat that food fades a little bit and that's what the research would sort of suggest yeah no it's really interesting and I think it kind of makes me think of and I don't know if there's a you've are uh, whether or not you would link it to this at all like the food palatability reward hypothesis in terms of like i don't know maybe a lot of people end up i guess it's become more popular to go back to like the clean eating and remove kind of the sweeteners remove the tasty foods later in their diets because there's that re reward hypothesis whereby you maybe it's smelling i don't know if that could be involved but also certainly eating a sweet food makes you crave to eat more of that or eat more food have you seen any research in that and kind of what are your feelings behind the food reward palate food palatability reward hypothesis yeah so like um so the, the, la the last sort of year i've become known as like the the diet break refeed guy um and a question well a lot of a lot of people contact me about sort of their, their planning how to do an intermittent diet how to do um their refeeds and how to do their diet breaks and a, and a question that i was often getting was um People were saying, um, like, when I'm on my diet cows, I'm, I'm super compliant, super adherent. I just, I, I stick to my 2200, no, 2200 calories, no issue. 
Then like I have my double day refeed at the end of the week where I'm going to have, when I'm planning to have, let's say 2,800, 3,000 calories on, on those, on those two days. Um, but the, the occurrences of binges and overeating are happening a lot more often during the refeed days versus the diet wow. days. And sort of, I was thinking about it for a while and I think it ties in really nicely um, to the food reward hypothesis in the fact that when you think about people when, when they're during their dieting days and calories low, calories are low, typically they'll fill their, their caloric um, quota with oatmeal, potato, veggies, and, th and things like that, sort of mm -hmm. very low palatability, high satiety foods. And then when the refeed comes around, all of a sudden they want to start fitting in sushi and cereals and, and things like that, all these like really tasty carbs, like how many tasty carbs can I get in my 400 grams of carbs for the day or something. And I think that it's causing people to overeat during diet breaks and refeeds because these foods are just so much more damn tasty. They just want to eat a whole, yeah. whole um, lot more of them. And, and people also need to remember that sort of with diet breaks and refeeds, um, they are an adherence and satiety tool, but they are not going to remove they, – they, they're not going to take your satiety and appetite levels back to baseline. Like 400, 400 grams of carbs, is, is, you're still going to be hungry after that if you've, if you've really been pushing the weight down over the last sort of couple of months or, or something like that. Um, so my recommendation with, with that has been sort of try to keep your food um, selection pretty similar um, – on sort of diet days versus refeeds and diet breaks and just sort of increase the quantities of them. Um, and I think that's led to sort of a lot better adherence during these high feeding periods. Yeah, it's really interesting to me because I've, I've heard people say that if they haven't binged on those days in particular, at least the days following, they seem then hungrier than what they were before doing it, which kind of seems counter mm -hmm. like, well, you've just ate more. But maybe that again is linked to the fact that they've eaten tastier foods. And so the body's now driving hunger mm -hmm. signals a little bit more. And it's not like a because it, it's kind of counter to what you'd expect. It's like, well, you've just yeah, been 100%. in a deficit, you've yeah. cashed in, you've kind of earned some interest, and now you're even more hungry than you were when you were like in that initial deficit mm. for a long period of time. Mm. And I think even if you are like having those sort of higher palatability foods, let's say on Saturday and Sunday, um, even if it's not sort of driving appetite up um, from like a hormonal standpoint, like it's not changing the balance of leptin, ghrelin, and, and PYY, I think if you go back to Monday and you go back to your bland diet foods, you might feel hungrier just purely from a psychological point of being like, damn, like yesterday was so much better than this sort of thing. And like maybe you miss it a little bit, but I don't know, like that's, that's an open area of research, man. That's, that's a gap for sure. Yeah. I think, I think people are guessing about that a little bit at the moment. Yeah. I think it's, it's really interesting. It literally just reminded me of a, um, a client recently got in touch with me kind of out of the blue emailing me he would never do this i was like i'm really struggling to stay on my diet i think i need to have like a break like what should we do and so i instigated a diet break earlier than what was planned and then he checked in a couple of days later and said as soon as you told me that i was on a diet break i was no longer hungry <laughs> it was just like mm. i didn't even need to eat up to the the maintenance calories mm. As soon as you said it, I just, my hunger went. So that psychological element, like I think mm. I've even been there where I've kind of ended a diet and then the day I'm meant to be back to like maintenance intake or something, I'm just like, oh, I could actually keep dieting. And why am I less hungry than yesterday? It makes mm. no sense to me. But mm. so I think there is that psychological element. Mm. 
Yeah, and I'll just give you one one more example in terms of the, the psychological tie into sort of these refeeds and diet breaks. I've made the analogy before, um, and people seem to like it. Is like um, when you're walking your dog on a leash, um, that would be like your dieting, your deficit days. Like the dog stays close and and just walks at your pace, sort of thing. Um, and then sort of the, when the refeed or diet breaks comes along, you sort of you, yeah you let go of, of the dog off the leash, and then all of a sudden the dog doesn't want to walk at the same pace. It wants to sprint like right. just sprint away as far as it can and so that that was sort of tying to the people being like once they get a little taste of more calories sometimes it can drive wanting more and more and more um so yeah it's, it's a it's a funny thing that there's 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 definitely a psychological component into these refeeds and diet breaks and these higher feeding periods which is why i'm i'm so hard on, on sort of putting a ton of questionnaires right. um, in my studies that i'm doing um at the university so i can try to um understand that a little bit and pick it apart excellent and another kind of line of interest that's kind of, I guess, has exploded in like maybe the last five years is like Fitbits and kind of non-exercise activity, thermogenesis, tracking steps, elements like that. And you looked into a bit of research in terms of their accuracy and then practical applications towards people using them. Would you like to share just a bit about that and whether or not kind of what the practical take homes from that research? Yeah, see, the the... <laughs> It would be so fantastic if these things were accurate, um, but unless you're sort of buying a $5,000 actigraph, which is sort of a three-dimensional accelerometer, they, right. that, that's what we use in our diet. That's what we're using in our diet study to sort of track activity and meat and things like that. Um, unless you're using one of those um, sort of $120 Fitbit um, in terms of accuracy, um, in terms of the accuracy of energy expenditure, um, we're, we're looking at massive error margins. Um, so if, if people are using sort of, if they're using predicted energy expenditure, um, based coming from their Fitbit to sort of justify how much calories they should be taking in. I think that's a wrong move. Um, I think Fitbits in terms of their application, um, I, I generally wouldn't advise going any further than, than tracking steps. Cool. Yeah. Cause it like steps is, is it steps is a rough proxy of activity as well. Um, but I think that's probably, um, the best you can use for them, mm -hmm. um, at, at the moment. Yeah. yeah. And it's like I, I've had clients at least say, I've weighed in on this scale and I weigh on this scale and this one's weighing me different to, the, to this one. I'm just like, well, it, we don't actually care necessarily unless we're trying to make a weight for like, a, I don't know, then you need mm. to have the judges scale or the scale that they're using at the competition. Mm. But it doesn't actually matter how mm. much you weigh. It's just tracking what that weight is doing. And I think mm. uh, like similarly to at least tracking steps and maybe it's off by i don't know in a range of a thousand but at least it's hopefully consistently inaccurate and so you can yeah, use it to the, monitor the data, activity sorry the the data does show that um the accuracy in their step count is far more accurate oh, cool. than, than their predictions of energy expenditure yeah that's what the reviews have shown cool perfect yeah mm -hmm. i think because like I've, I've had some clients that um have been like oh my my fitbit showed that i burned the extra 600 calories yeah. Um, today so i had i had an extra bowl of oats and like i, I just think that's the wrong way to, to go about it um yeah, yeah that's what i'll say on it. yeah it's tricky you almost want them to remove fat because it's just like i don't know it's not helpful if it's so inaccurate why mm. would you even put the the number of calories yeah. there it's doing more harm than good probably yeah so yeah. i've kind of gone through a lot of the the kind of 
different questions that you hadn't covered on kind of different podcasts before but i think it would be valuable for the listeners to hear more about the intermittent dieting probably probably touch on it and people are like oh i want to hear more about that so i think it would be useful to go over it um and maybe first of all talking about kind of what is people hear diet break in the literature what does that mean exactly yeah um so um refeeds and diet breaks they they both fit um sort of under this branch or this larger term of, of intermittent calorie restriction, which I talked about before. Um, now, the problem is refeeds and diet breaks, that, that, that term gets, gets used a little bit interchangeably sometimes, like people don't know if they're having a refeed or a diet break. Um, but in terms of discriminating between the two, um, at the moment, I think the best way we can separate them is by describing a refeed as a 24 to 48 hour increase in calories that alternates with a period of dieting um, and a diet break being something longer. So sort of 72 hours up to four, um, 14 days. Um, and I say 14 days because um, we had some really solid research um, uh, by um, Byrne and colleagues um, a couple of years ago, with, which was the Matador study. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, they were using two-week diet breaks and they showed better sort of body composition outcomes and less weight regain um, using, a diet, using a two-week diet break method after every two weeks of dieting versus just a traditional continuous dieting approach. Um, now, in terms of how you, you'd want to sort of set up a diet break, um, that's, another, that's another gap we have um, because – Obviously, we need we know that sort of whether it's a refeed or diet break, calories need to increase. Um, but one thing that the research, a few things that the research aren't sort of set on is well, how much should the calories increase by, and and where should the calories come from? Um, does it even matter? For example, if it didn't matter, we could just increase sort of protein and fat and carbs evenly, or we could just increase the macronutrients that we prefer. Um, now, I don't think that's correct. I think we do have some decent research to suggest that um, increasing carbohydrate is going to have better, more benefits than, than increasing protein um, or fat. And that comes down to um, we know that um, leptin, which is a hormone that regulates our satiety um, and our energy expenditure, um, meaning that um, when we have higher leptin, higher leptin levels in the blood, we have higher energy expenditure and better satiety, less hungry. Um, we know that leptin is particularly sensitive to carbohydrates. So there's a theory that um, after an influx of carbohydrates, you might get this short-term release um, of leptin levels. And when that happens, potentially energy expenditure, so metabolic rate might normalize a little bit, come up. Um, satiety might balance out a bit. And if that happens, sort of adhering to the diet is going to be a little bit better. We also know that when an athlete has higher carbohydrate availability, a few things happen. We know that their strength and endurance performance is better. Um, we also know that they are able to recover from and tolerate higher training volumes. Um, so if you're able to, using an intermittent diet approach, if you're able to give sort of a, an, an athlete sort of these, these influx of carbs across the diet phase, there's potential for them to be able to sort of push through more volumes, recover from it. And obviously we know volume such a such a strong driver um, for hypertrophy. So um, the more volumes that they can perform is probably going to at least mitigate any potential um, muscle losses that, that, that can occur from the diet phase. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's some of the considerations for, for diet breaks. But as, as you can probably work out, we don't really have a, a, a clear cut sort of this is how you should diet break. This is how much you should increase um, your calories. And just going back to the calories thing, for example, like I know that 
like there, there's a sort of a spectrum of how much people increase these calories on a diet break. For example, we could go to one end and, and have like the, the, the bodybuilder cheat day where they're like just untracked, right. just go for it. Like people still use those and that was, that's still an intermittent diet by yeah. definition. Um, and on the other end, um, I, I know that coaches will give the athletes refeeds and diet breaks um, where they they will increase their calories, but it's still a deficit. It's just yeah. less of a deficit, and and I don't think that's going to do much of anything. Um, and we think that sort of the the goal sort of um, range is to be at, at least in energy balance. So take the athlete out of an energy deficit into energy balance, which means that they're eating enough calories to at least maintain their body weight. Because yeah. when that happens, that's when we start seeing some of these normalization of adaptive responses to energy restriction, this, this reduction in diet fatigue. Cool. yeah it's really useful to actually have those definitions laid out because i think there are i think within the fitness industry with lots of different terminology there's lots of different takes on the point so to know mm. that a refeed is generally kind of up to two days and i think more than that is generally a diet break up to 14 days and then yeah. for the most part coming to maintenance intake for that period of time is the goal so and then you touched on some of the benefits kind of talking about leptin. What are the other kind of the known benefits of these periods of time versus what we kind of theorize or hope is going on? Um, so the benefits of diet breaks in yeah. general? Yeah. Um, so we know that sort of with our traditional continuous dieting approach, um, uh, the a a, a continuous caloric dieting is only really effective sort of um, for a fixed period of time, a short period of time sort of before our body adjusts to it and we stop losing weight because we have these inbuilt mechanisms that tries to keep us around our set point body weight or body fat level. Um, and like I, I touched on these before, they call it adaptive responses to energy restriction. Um, and broadly, um, which most the, the, the responses that we mostly talk about is sort of these metabolic changes um, and hormonal changes, the, these hormones that regulate our appetite. Um, and in terms of um, the metabolic changes um, that are going on, we, we, we're getting these reductions um, in energy expenditure as we progress through the dieting phase and, and as we lose weight. And what that means is, is that sort of um, we burn less calories at rest, we burn less calories um, during activity, and then as we progress through the diet phase, sort of that 500-calorie deficit that we started at week one um, of the diet is maybe only a 300-calorie deficit um, by week three of the diet or something like that. And if you continue with that along, um, weight loss more becomes more difficult and effect, eventually you'll hit a weight loss plateau. Um, now, in terms of the hormonal changes, um, we get a change in balance of, of these hormones that regulate our appetite. And, and the key ones which I'm looking at in my diet study, um, my diet break study, is leptin, ghrelin, and PYY. Um, and as you diet, as you lose weight, when you're in a caloric deficit, um, you you get these persistent drives to eat. These, these you, you get less satiety, um, more hunger, um, the, the, a physiological shift trying to get you to eat more. Um, so when we get these metabolic and, and hormonal changes happening in combination, it's making weight loss more and more difficult um, and it's making adherence to, to the caloric target more difficult. And, and generally what we refer to um, sort of these changes in combination is diet fatigue. Um, we, also, we, we also know that um, sort of – Sticking to a continuous caloric diet, sort of 12 weeks straight, is very difficult. Sometimes um, someone might be at week five of the diet and feeling pretty shitty. They've got seven hard weeks of dieting ahead of them. Um, sometimes they might crack, binge eat, and the athlete ends up going backwards because of it. 
So there's some of the sort of changes that, that are accompanying um, a continuous dieting phase. Now, where the intermittent dieting um, approach comes in is there's a theoretical rationale that an intermittent diet, so a diet that uses refeeds or diet breaks, might minimize or mitigate some of these negative sort of adaptations um, that are taking place. For example, for in terms of um, the metabolic changes, we've shown, we've seen in the research that um, trials that have used a two-week diet break after every two weeks of dieting or a three-day refeed after every 11 days of dieting and also a two-day refeed after every five days of dieting, all those approaches have maintained resting energy expenditure at a higher level than right. a continuous dieting approach, which tells us that sort of when you have these short-term influx of calories across the dieting phase, it might just help to normalize energy expenditure and help our metabolic rate to stay a little bit sort of closer to baseline or a little bit a little bit higher. And we want our energy expenditure sort of to be as high as possible because that would, that means we'd get better weight loss efficiency. Now, weight loss efficiency just means um, sort of the amount of weight that you can lose per unit of caloric restriction, or another way we could say it is sort of losing a fixed amount of weight but eating higher calories, yeah. so which, which would be an ideal situation for the athlete. So that's the metabolic stuff. Um, and I also talked about sort of the, the leptin response um, to carbohydrate. Um, but what we also see is um, when you take someone to energy balance, um, you start seeing these normalization um, of these of these hunger signals. Um, so we also think that um, by giving someone refeeds and diet breaks across their their, their dieting phase, um, it might make appetite management just a little bit easier. They might be able to stick to the plan. Um, they're not feeling so sort of ravenous all mm -hmm. the time. Um, and just finally, with the psychological um, changes, we we think that sort of let's say. I'll give you an example. My, my diet break study um, is giving the athletes a one-week diet break after every three weeks of dieting, and they're, they're going to have 12 weeks of dieting um, all up. So that contrasts to uh, sort of our control continuous group, which is doing the 12 weeks of dieting straight. Now, what we think, just from a psychological perspective, um, is that the group who are getting sort of um, these one-week diet breaks after every three, um, all of a sudden sort of these dieting blocks – become a lot more manageable um, and, and it, it's just just from purely going back from feedback from from working with these participants it seems like because they've only really got a diet for 21 days at a time before calories increase um, they're not getting so overwhelmed yeah. and even if, even if they're feeling pretty shitty maybe at like at the end of sort of the end of a second week of a diet block they can sort of go well i've only needed a diet for seven more days and then calories are going to come up training performance is going to increase a little bit going to feel a little bit better um whereas you contrast that to the continuous group if they're if they're feeling pretty crap on on week three they've they've still got eight in front of them so um nine weeks in front of them so um i also think just from um just from going from feedback with the participants as well um when you when you give these athletes um these diet breaks, it gives them an opportunity um, to go and have a social event with family, um, go out and have Nando's with their buddies or something yep. like that. And um, I think that that like we're we're tracking mood states in this diet study. Um, I just I'm so confident that the that the diet break group because they're able to do that and they don't feel so socially isolated, yep. um, they're able to go have a meal um, with their loved ones. Um, 
I just I'm I'm, I'm pretty confident that we're going to see better markers of, of or more positive mood states um, in that group. And what's great about sort of going out and having a meal on your diet break when it's tracked is it doesn't it doesn't carry the same guilt of sort of cheating on your diet or sort of an, an, an unplanned deviation. Um, so that's some of the benefits that we think sort of an intermittent diet, specifically using diet breaks, um, would have over um, a continuous dieting approach. Really interesting. And I, I don't know if uh, in terms of the benefits, is it like if you have two days of refeeding versus like a week diet break, is it like are they cumulative benefits or is there kind of have you found a sweet spot in which kind of we've taken enough of a break to get most of the benefits, but not so long away from dieting that we're now dieting for even longer? So that, that is such a good question because it hasn't been tested yet, but we're going to do it in that study that I was just telling you about because what we're going to do um, without giving too much away is when I said sort of intervals of the diet break, we're not just going to measure them pre-diet break um, and post-diet break. We're going to measure them at day A, day B, day D, day E of, of the diet break. So we can actually get a time course of change. So, for example, we might see that maybe – Two days of maintenance is not enough to trigger some normalization in, in energy expenditure, but after five days, or actually we start seeing things track up a little bit. So yeah, that we're, we're going to be able to answer that question pretty soon, which is cool. Excellent. But yeah, great question. And actually, I was wondering, in terms of these studies, is there any differences between males and females in this regard? Like, uh, is there any differentiation there? At the See, moment? like the the it, we haven't been using differentiation, but obviously the 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 massive limitation when using females is, is sort of the weight fluctuation based on their yeah. cycle, and and um, not not all females get sort of this the water retentive effects sort of pre-cycle and, and things like that. Um, and when we were planning the big diet break study, and I, and I was speaking with Eric about it, we we thought far out, maybe we should just do men. But then we thought like. If like we, we want we this protocol that we're trying to test in, in our diet break study, we want it to be like really usable by athletes. Right. And and I feel like if if we just didn't if we didn't at least show that sort of females could get benefits from it too, it's just gonna give a, a disservice to the females because yeah. they're not gonna they're not gonna know, well, do we are we gonna respond differently? So um, we actually haven't treated um, the males or females any differently in terms of the protocol. Um, but we are going to do some analyses on like within the study on males versus females to see that if there is a difference, but I didn't want to, I didn't want to exclude because I just thought, I thought that was a bit unfair because it's not like females aren't going to be using yeah. diet breaks too, you know? Yeah. No, absolutely. And I think that's really good that you guys are including that because it's always, mm. I, I hate it to feel that women feel like they're ever being left out, but there always seems to be oh, actually there's way more women getting into this and, their health mm. is just as important as kind of men's health and their goals are just important. So I'm glad that you guys are doing that. Yeah. And then in terms of kind of at the moment, what are your views in terms of kind of a refeed of two days maybe um, versus accumulating say that two day refeed and using it like later and like say you had, I don't know, over the course of three weeks, you have six refeeds rather than kind of over those three weeks keeping in a deficit linearly and then over the next kind of week having all of those six refeeds in one go do you mm. right now have a kind of whether or not you think one approach would be better than the other yeah if like we don't know for sure um but if i had to guess i would think that um the six days cumulative together as like a diet break right. um, would, would be better than, than the short-term bouts of influx of calories. Um, 
just because um, I think when you put someone in energy balance for that long, it's a really strong signal to the system that sort of energy isn't such in, isn't in such short supply. And then the body might say, okay, we can start sort of turning back some of these adaptive responses of, of, of dieting. We can start sort of reducing these diet fade because we, we've got this energy availability is high and it's been high for a while. So that that's my guess. Cool. Yeah. Awesome. Jackson, I want to say a massive thank you for today's podcast. I think there's been a, a huge amount of take-homes and really interesting stuff that you're doing. And I have to thank you for that research because, I mean, I'm going to be using it and I'll be using it personally and as a coach. And if people want to learn more about kind of you, find your Instagram and everything, where should they head? Yeah, so uh, firstly, thanks so much for having me on, man. It's an absolute honor. I love speaking about this stuff, especially to, to guys as knowledgeable as you. Um and best place to find me is Instagram at Jackson Peels. Um, sort of all my research updates, anything I'm doing in the lab, um, any new research that comes out, I'll always be um, pumping it out on there. Um, and if you want to sort of just stay up to date with my, my research publications, you can find me on ResearchGate as well. Um, I keep that up to date with any new studies and things like that. Fantastic. I'll make sure that's all linked below. Again, thank you for coming on and thank you guys for listening. Thank you, man. Appreciate it.